You're listening to the Founder Coach Podcast, a show that investigates what it really means to be the CEO of a fast-growing tech company. My name's Dave Bailey, and I coach founders that raise capital from the world's top venture funds to fuel their business. And I'm sitting down with CEOs to talk about their experiences, the challenges they face, and the lessons they've learned, or are learning right now. Hello, founders and friends. Now, if you're listening to this show, the chances are you work in a company where talent is essential for success. But how do you create talent in your company? Well, today I'm joined by the founder of Learnably, which is a company that helps employees find the right training options to help them build better skills and better careers. This founder is also a former O2 Entrepreneur of the Year. He's an MBE, which means member of the most excellent order of the British Empire. And he's a former advisor to the Prime Minister, as well as young global leader by World Economic Forum. Rajib Day, that's quite an intro. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. It's really great to be here with you. You have achieved a remarkable amount. How old are you? 35. So you're younger than me. So it's just an absolute impressive set of accolades. Why did you start Learnably? Learnably really came from my experiences of my previous venture, which was called Internships. We'd helped thousands of companies hire great entry-level talent. And the question then became having helped these companies find that talent. How do you develop them? How do you retain them? How do you attract them in a world of work where employees want to know how they're going to learn and grow? And for a lot of our clients, they have overstretched people teams. They may or may not have a learning and development function. And at the same time, the employees, they're bright, they're hungry, and they want access to very best. And so the idea of Learnerby came about to create this curated marketplace, the best multimodal learning. So whether it be books or courses or conferences or coaching, we recognize everyone learns differently. And fundamentally, all of my ventures in prior to Learnerby have always been about solving my own problems. So I didn't have an answer to how could I support my salespeople or my developers or my marketing people, because I'm not a functional expert in all those things. And there's so much content out there and there's a lack of quality control to know what good looks like. And so really I'm solving my own problem. And I recognize that this is a common problem amongst many companies based on the experiences I had with internships. And you mentioned you are a serial entrepreneur, you've run businesses before. Tell us a little bit about internships, because I know that was one of your first ventures. Yeah, absolutely. When I was at university, I used to run the Entrepreneur Society at Oxford, and I found myself being approached by startups and SMEs that wanted to advertise jobs to our members because they didn't have the brand of a Goldman Sachs or a Google to come directly on campus and do the milk round, but they wanted access to bright talent. And so started as just a simple listing site. And then when I graduated in 2008, it was the start of the graduate unemployment crisis. Whilst I had the opportunity to go work in banking, consulting, had a couple of job offers, for me, did feel like I wanted to work for anyone and I wanted to do something kind of impactful and positive. And so turned my focus to launching internships in 2009. And over the years, we helped over 7,000 companies find great talent. Even when you were running internships, you were seeing this problem around how do you upskill your team? It was a problem that I was facing myself and a lot of our clients were talking about their personal learning stipend or budget, but typically that money would go unspent. People don't really know what they should be learning. I personally benefited a lot from having a peer support community of founders and I could ask them on a mailing list, what should I be doing or who should I be talking to? If you're anyone but the founder, you may not have such strong contacts and support networks. And so if you're a junior marketer or an entry-level data scientist, or even a more senior colleague, who do you turn to? That's kind of where the idea of Learnerby came about, which was we want to curate the best learning opportunities for people based on what they want to learn and how they like to learn. 
and provide that level of trusted support and guidance for your employees, but in a way where they own their development. So this is not about compliance-driven training. This is not about top-down mandating people learn. This is about sparking curiosity and creating a culture of learning where every employee is excited about learning and growing. And that's what we're about learning. And so who are your customers today? We have over 80 clients today. We work with some of the fastest growing tech companies like Sneak, GoCardless, Curve, Free Trade, HelloFresh, also in the gaming space like King.com and quite a lot in fintech and financial services as well. I'm a big advocate for training in a fast-paced environment where there's so much competition for talent. Training can be a real differentiator. But one thing I've always found is you can have the training budget, but how do you actually get your team to use it and to find the right options for them? Yeah, it's a really common challenge. So our clients prior to using Lanobi would report that less than 15% of their training budgets will actually get used. You just don't know what you should be doing. You don't even know that it even exists. So a lot of companies have a budget, but then it's not communicated. And there's a lot of friction. You have to buy it yourself and then expense it. And that can be off-putting. So we see engagement utilization more than triple because one, we are curating the best content that's out there. So that's kind of making the discovery problem easier. Two, it's a fully managed experience. And so you have your learning credits on the platform. You just click on it. Your manager approves it. It gets delivered to you. So there's no expensing. And three, there's also this kind of network effect where you can see what people in your company are learning. You can get playlists from industry experts. You can see what's trending across all of our 80 plus clients. So really kind of sparking that curiosity. And the final thing is that personalized approach is that people learn differently. And so if, even if I think about my own learning preferences, that's massively changed over lockdown. Pre-lockdown, I would love reading physical books on my commute to the office. Now, because I'm not commuting, I've switched to listening to Audible. And Learnably is probably the only platform that is tailored to your learning style. So it's not just e-learning. You know that e-learning is great, it's accessible, but it doesn't work for everybody. So if you want to get a coach, attend a conference, or buy a book, we can cater to all of those needs, which then results in such high levels of engagement in the platform. You're kind of outsourcing the learning and development function of a big multinational. Smaller companies can access that capability. For some companies, we act as a proxy learning and development function. For other companies where they have teams in place, we take away the admin burden of having to deal with 30 different vendors. They don't have to deal with managing licenses here and there because what they would typically find is they would sign up to a blanket enterprise-wide subscription to a certain vendor, but only 10% of people would bother using that vendor at the end of the year. So they've wasted tens of thousands of dollars on content people don't care about, whereas learnably, your employees are in the driving seat. So they get access to over 250 different providers and they decide what they want to spend their budget on. So the company doesn't need to second guess that. And so the L&D teams can actually focus on delivering their onboarding training, compliance related work or manager training. And we help provide a accessible approach for everyone to self-serve and manage their own development. What have you learned around engaging the workforce to actually use their training budgets? What actually works? Everyone is just innately curious and wants to know what other people are doing. And so playlists of the company CEO or senior managers who have curated lists of here's a podcast I'm listening to, here's a book I'm reading, and here's a TED talk that I watched, they generally lead to more engagement because you've got that social proof. There's an element of knowing what's new, what's trending in your industry. And the last thing is just removing the friction. If you can remove any barrier and impediment to learning, 
that will boost engagement. And so making people fill out some form and then getting it reimbursed, that putting too many steps in the way will just lead to people not bothering. Whereas with Learnably, we've removed all of those steps and made it super easy for people to engage. What do you see as the trends in the training space right now? There's lots of interesting new forms of learning coming out. The Udemy founder has launched a new business called Maven, looking at cohort-based learning. We're seeing obviously audio learning courses now being fully kind of audio-based. But also not to underestimate the benefit of old school books, right? So that's one thing that we saw is particularly with lockdown and the shift to remote, online fatigue. And so books are one of the most popular forms of learning on our platform, which is surprising, but also not surprising if you think about what's happened in the world and the lack of in-person training opportunities kind of happening. People have shifted. In terms of the topic areas, first-time leadership is one of the hottest areas because often people have been catapulted into management and leadership roles, but they've never been a manager before, so they don't have the foundations to support them. And so resources or coaching around that is a very hot topic on the platform. So as a serial entrepreneur then, having built multiple businesses, what did you do differently at Learnably to make use of your previous experience? With internships, I kind of fell into it. It just started as a listing site whilst I was studying. And then upon graduating, I was keen to do something that was impactful and made a difference in society when graduate unemployment was so high. And there was a lot of just learning by doing because I've never had a so-called proper job. I've always just started my own things. And so I've had to just learn by doing. There's a number of things that you just pick up in terms of managing people, the people you're hiring, how you hire, and the life experience of negotiating with clients because in internships, we had a very similar audience at B2B SMEs, and now we're working with similar audiences, but also enterprise. You pick up the tips and tricks around negotiating with businesses as you go on. Very curious to hear some of those tips and tricks. So at the moment, we are contracting with a very large enterprise client. And I think it can seem like there's a massive power imbalance because they are huge and you're not. But what's interesting is particularly when it comes more inbound, it's not essential to roll over and it's not essential just to give in. We push back on a number of things, which I think if I were starting internships, I wouldn't be so confident. These companies, yes, they have their master service agreements. They have their fixed terms, but nothing is actually set in stone. And if they really want to work with you, they will find ways of flexing their terms. Just because a company's massive and the contract could be game changing, you don't just have to accept everything that they put your way. Powerful words. What are some of the issues that you faced while growing Learnably thus far? We've more than tripled in terms of our revenue, but also we've more than doubled our headcount in the last 12 months. So we now are at about 55 people. 12 months ago, we were at 20 or so people. As you go through those phases of growth, there are challenges and things that you need to address at each stage. There's a lot of conversation around product debt, but I don't think it's really talked about enough around the HR and people side is that you take a lot of shortcuts on like, it's okay. We don't need to bother with progression frameworks. We don't need to bother with super detailed systems and processes. But then suddenly when you find yourself in a situation where you are scaling really quickly, you can get into trouble because if you don't have those foundations in place, you can come unstuck. We hired our head of people, Lauren, she was at 50th employee. And I kind of just wish that we brought her in earlier. Like we probably should have brought her in at 20. You can kind of see the stark difference of bringing in more seasoned people leaders into the company and what they bring. If you know you're going to go on a journey of growth, 
I would highly recommend bringing that level of expertise sooner rather than later. If I think of some of my other colleagues who've got startups, they brought them in 70 or 100, but I would have done it, you know, even earlier than 15. I'd say dealing with the people side of things with obviously COVID, the shift to remote, dealing with employee engagement and well-being, as well as hiring and business obviously growing, you just really need to ensure you've got those foundations in place on the people side. How would you go back and convince your younger self to hire a people manager earlier? We had a people ops manager, Marie, she did a fantastic job. She was with us for three years. So she started as my EA and office manager, then became people ops manager, very much learned on the job. She did an amazing job, but I think there's a difference between what you can do having been self-taught and then coming with that level of external experience where Lauren has worked in larger companies, kind of go through that scale at ASOS or booking.com or iTech media. And so she just brings a different perspective, which you can never get. You've never worked in other kind of environments. And so I would have just augmented Marie earlier with more senior people talent. And now one thing that I've said, having got Lauren in place is that we will heavily overinvest in the people function. I think even more important as an HR tech company is that we want to lead the way and be the gold standard in all things people. And I have very high expectations for myself and the company on the people side of things, because ultimately that's how I feel you will win in business is by attracting and retaining top talent. I think now's a good time for us to take a break. And when we come back, Raj and I are going to talk openly and honestly about some of the challenges he's facing right now. Alex, thanks so much for jumping on the call. You are the CEO of StepSize. In a sentence, what does StepSize do? StepSize is an issue tracker that lives in the code editor and helps engineering teams fight technical debt. Now, you recently took the Clarity program. What motivated you to take Clarity? Well, I had collected loads of user feedback on our product and positioning and was a few months away from starting to fundraise again. And I wanted to take all our lessons and integrate them into a new narrative for step size of the company, but also the product. Got it. Now, could you share some of your key takeaways from doing the program? I loved working with storytelling templates, having every aspect of step size written down into a short paragraph with clear sections to tweak for every iteration was hugely helpful in clarifying my thinking. On top of that, it was extremely helpful to bounce ideas and run our work past the community of founders who were also working through the program. I can't tell you how many great ideas I've picked up from them. And is there anything you want people who are considering Clarity to know? Just do it. As a founder, I would recommend Clarity to any startup founder and CEO looking for a framework that they can use to clarify and constantly improve their company's narrative over its lifetime. My cohort included founders at very different company stages, and they all left with major breakthroughs. That is awesome. Thank you so much, Alex. If you want to learn about how StepSize can help you with your tech debt, why don't you visit StepSize.com? And if you want to learn about what Clarity can do for your company, visit DaveBailey.com, click the links to Clarity, and get in touch. I would love to hear from you. Now, let's get back to this amazing episode. Welcome back. We're joined by Rajiv Day the CEO of Learnably, and you can find open job positions on Learnably.com. So Rajib, how is your back? My back actually is remarkably fine. So for the past five years, I've been suffering on and off a lot with back pain. And it kind of came to an head end of June last year, where I ended up being diagnosed with a condition called Calder Aquinas Syndrome, which is pretty rare. I had lost sensation from my waist downwards, and I couldn't feel anything. 
And it's one of the few neurological emergencies where they have to operate on you immediately to avoid being paralyzed. And so I'm really fortunate that I have a family of medics. My sister recognized what it was, took me to any. I got operated on that night about 11.30. But since then, I've made a remarkable recovery. I think I took about three days properly resting and then started getting back into things. And, you know, it's probably the classic founder thing. But I genuinely did feel having my startup was part of my speedy recovery. Other people might see it as being a sign of a workaholic. It was a blessing in disguise because typically doctors don't operate on backs because they're quite risky, but this was one of the situations where they had no choice. And so I had to have surgery, but it removed the underlying problems, which means I don't have any back pain anymore, which is a relief. Well, I'm so glad to hear that the operation has gone well, but I can imagine the terror you must have felt when you realized that, you know, this was so serious that you needed to go into the operation room. You know, ignorance is bliss. I didn't know anything about the syndrome called Aquinas syndrome until I was diagnosed with it. And then I went on Facebook and joined all these groups and then it petrified me. And it actually saddened me as well because there's not a huge amount of awareness of it. And there's a lot of people even younger than me that have suffered with this and this totally debilitating. Their lives have changed. They can't walk. They can't work. They've had so many complications. And I'm in probably the blessed minority of people that have made a really swift and pretty much 100% recovery. And so I feel really, really fortunate. But in a way, not knowing about it in advance was probably a good thing. But I think more awareness of the telltale signs are important. So if someone does have the same kind of symptoms that they get themselves seen to and go to any immediately, because time is of the essence of this condition. And in addition, you were the CEO of a company, which is an incredibly high pressure position with a lot of responsibility. So how did you manage to continue on as CEO while going through this terrible ordeal? It's at times of emergency that you really see your team coming into their own and just to see the leadership team step up and basically just took over everything. And it was amazing to see everyone, not just leadership team, the whole company really rallied around to make me feel like there's nothing to worry about, which, you know, I didn't have anything to worry about as such responding and helping with board meetings and whatnot. The boardrooms are super supportive. So, yeah, I think I'm very fortunate to have an amazing team, amazing investors that were helpful and supportive throughout that process. It really puts things into perspective. But as I said, I feel like having the company to return to and being just genuinely excited about what I do also helped my recovery because having a sense of purpose can really help and having a positive mindset. I shared a, an article I wrote with my team about this whole benefit of a positive mindset. And the situation that I went through could have been interpreted in two different ways. So there were a number of complications in my procedure and my process leading up to the operation, which I could have chosen to dwell on. Instead, I chose to dwell on the fact that I got operated on, it happened within 24 hours and the outcome was super positive. I think that's the main lesson I also share to my team is having that positive mindset really makes a huge difference. And I'm sure it's aided my recovery. And you said there's a link between emergency and the leadership team stepping up. What do you suppose causes that? It's a good test of how you have built people around you. We operate in a position of empowerment where our leadership team and everyone are just empowered to be their best selves and act in the way they see fit. It was a good, as it was dress rehearsal into how the company can operate without its founder CEO. And I would encourage all founders to really think about how do you build in 
self-redundancy so that you're not necessarily needed, which can be very hard in the early stages for sure, but it's all about building people around you. Yeah. Actually, just building in regular vacations into your CEO calendar has a big impact on the team because there's never a good time. And the three weeks before you're going to be in doubt, should I take this vacation or not? But actually allowing it to build up to that point where people really need to step up when you leave can often inject the oxygen into the room needed for people to grow and develop. I have to admit that I'm probably not as good at that as I should be. I typically end up taking most of my holiday towards the NBA around December. When I have a commute to myself, that takes time off of August. But yeah, totally agree. It's hard for all of us. It's hard for me too. I mean, I took a vacation three weeks ago where it was actually supposed to be an internal UK vacation, but about three days before we were supposed to leave, Ibiza came up on the green list. So we spent a week in Ibiza and I struggled to keep out of email for the week, right? It is really, really hard. I mean, my very first manager, we're talking back 15 years, said, whenever you take a vacation, make sure it's a two-week vacation. And that has turned out to be very, very good advice because the first week is not a full vacation, but the second week, it's all about the second week. I haven't slightly counted you, which is, I feel like staying on top of my emails is just a good thing because I don't want to come back three weeks later to a crazy inbox. And so... Even though I take myself out of meetings and whatnot, I have never not looked at my inbox. And that's probably a problem and says something about me. But I do kind of wonder whether I'm just preempting the chaos that will happen when I get back anyway. Well, question for you. Do you manage your own emails or do you have someone to look, look at that for you? I do manage my own emails, but I do have an EA that then manages schedules meetings for me. But I will do the filtering and the first pass at the inbox. Scheduling and meeting organization to have someone else do that is a big, big unlock. The next level of unlock is actually having someone help you with your emails too. What are some of the issues that you're currently facing as the CEO of Loanably? One thing that we experienced during lockdown is our user base just became super international pretty much overnight. And so now we have users in over 50 different countries and we need to ensure that our users in all countries could access the very best content they need. And as a marketplace, you always have to balance supply and demand. And obviously there's been a lot of folks in demand and we've got over 250 amazing suppliers, but that's been a big thing. As a result of launching with King.com in the gaming space, they required us to introduce multi-currency. So that internationalization was a big thing for us. So how can we support new currencies, work with new suppliers? And now approximately 15% or more of our revenues coming from the US, despite no US sales marketing uh, on our front. And so we are going to be making a proactive push into the US market. And so that's the thing I suppose taking up most headspace is how do you do that in the best possible way? How do you ensure that as you grow a team internationally and consciously that you ensure that your culture remains not just intact, but actually grows and evolves as you have another focus and a base, so to speak, that I would say is the key thing that I'm currently grappling with alongside obviously fundraising, which is a, a never ending thing for every founder. What's the real challenge for you in that? It's about trying to balance my time and kind of focus and ensure that we're delegating efficiently. Obviously the fundraising is the thing that only I can do. I suppose I'm more of a sales leaning founder rather than a product leading one. So I do take a keen interest and in quite active on particularly really large deals and opportunities like one we currently have. And so it's really about balancing that and ensuring that the people that we then hire, particularly the first few people in the US, 
I need to be super involved in that process because they will ultimately set the tone for the broad organization. Now that all said, it's also a question mark in this hybrid world, how much that actually plays a role because we're not at least now going to have a physical base in the US. And so yes, time zones become an issue, interacting more with other colleagues who are working in US hours, but depending on where to kind of hire from, is it East Coast, is it West Coast? Those are kind of the rituals and things that we need to think through. Then that I think is more connected broadly to our approach to hybrid working and ensuring that we create an inclusive culture for everyone, irrespective of where they're based. What's your philosophy on how you manage your time? So I'm pretty militant around how I time box things. So if anyone sees my calendar, they'll be horrified by literally pretty much every minute of my day is accounted for. And my colleagues kind of know that. I do say that. So I use my calendar and my inbox as a to-do list, even if it's not a meeting, if it's some kind of task that needs to be done, it will be blocked out into my diary, which means that if it doesn't get done, I can move it and it will get done eventually, but it means I don't forget that. And it also helps me protect my time so that my colleagues know that, okay, well, this is time for creating a board pack, or this is time for me to do investor reporting or like VC reporting, whatever it might be. I find that a really effective way to ensure that I get things done that I need to get done. Do you run analytics on your calendar then as well? I don't actually, but what I do have to say that I'm pretty good at following through on those tasks that are in there. So I know that if it's in the calendar, it will get done. And then my colleagues know which of those things could they try and take if there's something important that comes up and which one should they touch. But generally, I'm, I'm pretty good at sticking to what I said I'm going to do. Um, do you color code as well? No, I don't. Everything's one color. I have I, oh, my colleagues' calendars, which we, everyone has open calendars, so they're in multicolors, but my own calendars is all in one. I guess you wouldn't be that surprised, but most of my clients have a similar approach. If it's not in the calendar, it doesn't happen, which means you have to be proactive about if you're doing something that's more strategic, more proactive related to investors, let's say even hiring, you know, having space in the calendar there for you is important. And some of them will either use color coding. Some actually have rigged it so that software like Coda will do an analysis for them on their calendar. I'm always curious what people are doing with their calendars. It's quite funny because my family will often joke that if they're not in my slot, I won't even interact with them because literally even on the weekends, even social things are in there. They're in the diary, they get in there. So I think my family think I take that a bit too seriously. Well, I know your whole business is geared up around training. How do you, as a CEO, think about training your leadership, yourself? How does that integrate? Everyone in the leadership team has their own personal learning budget to spend how they see fit on their development. I benefit from having advisors and mentors. I've recently completed your clarity program as well, looking at how I communicate and not just fundraising, but thinking through internal comms, particularly as a team has grown so quickly, how do you reinforce the kind of values, the vision, the mission, and the purpose to ensure that everyone's on the same page is super important. And then just another skill set that I'm personally interested in developing is around coaching. And I think every manager should play the role of a coach. And I think having coaching skills is really important. And, and that's something that as our leadership team itself has grown quite considerably over the past 12 months, this next round of funding, we'll be really looking at how do we ensure that we function in an optimal and high-performing way as a team. One thing I'm really keen to do is kind of bring in external facilitation because up until this point, 
either myself or one of the leadership team members will be running our own meetings. I do think there's a need to, when you're having an away day or something, to just bring in that level of external facilitation to enable everyone to fully be present and not have to think about the mechanics of running everything and ensuring everything's going on time and whatnot. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I know you did clarity. The interesting thing is the next program is actually all around coaching. So I will uh, keep you in the loop. <laughs> Fantastic. Before we break then, I have a few questions that I'd love to ask. It is our quick fire round. Are you ready? As always. What SaaS product have you recently adopted that's working wonders for your business? We've started to embrace Lattice. So we've had it, but now we're trying to get Lattice more deeply embedded. So we're introducing OKRs into Lattice before we just used it for kind of one-to-ones. And then we're going to explore the other functionality of it as well. What extremely specific advice would you give yourself six months ago to help you avoid pain now? Hire a senior people leader sooner rather than later. Which investor deserves a call out and why? Two investors. One is our Seagram BC, so William McQuillan from Frontline Ventures. He backed me from the early days and he's gone above and beyond throughout our funding journey, always looking to add value. And as someone who's been an entrepreneur himself, he really understands the struggles and the challenges that goes with being an entrepreneur. And then our chairman, Toby, who has been our largest angel investor and has backed me from my kind of internships days and supported me throughout that whole period. Thanks to Toby and William for the amazing help researching this part as well too. And then conversely, what's the worst investor behavior that you've experienced during a fundraise? There was a certain high net worth individual who was introduced to me by our chairman and they felt it important to say, I will invest, but only if you get rid of your chairman. And I just found that highly unethical, given that's how the introduction came about because they wanted to take the role of the chairman. That's definitely not the right behavior that we want to see. And so we parted ways. And then just generally, I think there's a thing that you see where VCs don't keep you updated. They'll take a meeting and then they will just kind of ghost you. I think that's really poor form, particularly when you're running a process and there's a lot going on. Just either way, knowing where you stand is really important. What's the hardest thing about being the CEO that no one talks about? I think the hardest thing is knowing that Ultimately, yes, you've got the team around you, but the buck does stop with you in the good times and in the bad times. And in the earlier days when we were starting and struggling with product market fit, there have been so many hairy moments where we've been on the verge of just not having any money and we've always kind of pulled through. But ultimately, that's been quite stressful having to deal with that. But that's why it's also important to have really supportive chairman, Chris Toby, where he's the person that's been involved from the outset. Particularly if you're a solo founder, you need someone to be open with and share those trials and tribulations with. What makes leadership team meetings trickier than they really should be? I think it's interesting to define your leadership team. So recognizing which leveled decisions really need to take place. How do you ensure that time is most well spent? Do you have a clear agenda? How do you not fall into the trap of just discussing the day-to-day? Because that's what we often find ourselves falling into a trap, is that you just discuss the thing that's happening at the moment rather than taking yourself out of the weeds and thinking about the most impactful strategic decisions that need to be made because it's an expensive meeting. If you've got your most senior leaders in a virtual room for an hour and a half, you want to use that time in the best possible way. And then finally, what CEO in your network would you like to hear on this podcast? I would say Ben Gately from Charlie HR. Ben is someone I've known for a very long time and he thinks very deeply about culture. So I think he would be a great guest to have. 
Before we wrap up for the day then, do you have any questions for me? So yeah, I do have a question, Dave. So as someone who coaches predominantly Series A founders, what do you see as the most common challenge they come to you with? The first thing that comes to my mind is the challenge of holding people to account. Accountability is a really big theme for any leader, but in particular the CEO, because as you said, the buck stops with you. The other way of answering it is that if you are a Series A or a Series B founder, or even a Series C or a later stage founder, the set of problems that you have will be eerily similar. So whatever problems you are facing, you're not alone in facing this problem. If you shared them with a group of founders, I'm very sure that you would get a lot of founders saying, yeah, you know what, going through the same thing, it's really hard, isn't it? And there's just so many of these questions that don't have very clear answers, right? They're sort of open questions that we're wrestling with. So of course, the answer is always, it depends. <laughs> if you're facing a question and the answer is it depends, you know, you're not alone, we're all in that boat. It's not clear cut, really. Good to know. Thanks, Dave. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on the pod. How did you find it? As an avid listener, it's great to be on the other side. So thanks for having me. It's great to have you. And I, we've discussed a lot of different things I know that will be interesting. Not least your product, right? Because a lot of the companies that are listening are in the tech startup space, a lot of them are scaling and looking for ways to upskill their team. And, you know, how do I scale my team when I've got absolutely no time to help mentor them and coach them? And the answer is, well, training and external mentorship is actually quite a good option if you can find them, <laughs> right? So... If you are looking for training or mentorship for your team, why don't you head over to Learnably and check out their offering. And of course, if you enjoyed this podcast, why don't you go ahead and click the subscribe button so you can listen to more of them. Thank you very much to Rajib for coming on the show today. We'll catch up with you, the listeners, next time when we go deep with another high growth startup founder. So until then, stay healthy and stay learning. Catch you soon. Mm -hmm.